This is R.J. Rushdoony, Easy Chair Number 396, October the 8th, 1997. This evening, Andrew Sandlin and Douglas Murray uh, cannot be with us, but Mark Rushdoony and I will be uh, chatting with John Weaver. Pastor John Weaver has a very interesting background, a Georgian. He has been in uh, work on the staff of a Christian college as a pastor, as an evangelist, as a Christian educator, having uh, done some remarkable work with Christian schools, and he is a man with a varied background and experience. Uh, died in the wool southerner, but uh, with remarkable energy, so that uh, if you associate being southern with being easygoing and slow-talking, that's not John Weaver. He's a powerhouse. John, it's a pleasure to have you with us. Thank you. It's a joy to be here. You have had, uh, in recent years, a great many trips back and forth across country in all parts of the United States, in churches great and small. And I think it will be interesting to hear from you about what is happening in the church. Now, most people, if I may make a few remarks to begin with, look at the past with rose-colored glasses, and they assume that all was well because things were quieter, say, before World War II, which is true. But that did not mean we had strong churches. It meant that we were coasting on our Christian past. Yes. And we lived off our Christian capital for two or three generations. And after the war, very quickly it became apparent that we had exhausted that Christian caliber and character and capital. Well, the important question now is, is there awakening? Are we moving towards the greatest awakening or are we headed uh, straight downhill into hell? John, uh, What's your general reaction to that? Well, I believe, my brother, that first of all, there is an awakening across the country. I am encouraged greatly by it, simply because there is not only an awareness of the multitudinous problems that we have, but people are indeed crying for answers, and once they see that the Word of God has the answer, they're greatly encouraged, and certainly it gives them a great deal of hope and I could give illustration after illustration of people just being just literally overwhelmed with the fact that God's Word is indeed the answer. And we have been away from it for so long. And now there are a number of pastors that are uh, 
really returning to the word and being real expositors and beginning to show the connection between uh, the true faith and action. Mm-hmm. And uh, it is creating quite a stir across the country. Uh, don't hesitate to take as long as you want to answer any question. Now, you've been doing something that I think could not have been done uh, some years earlier, when I was young, for example. You've been preaching a, on God's law a church after church, conference after conference across the country. What is the response? Well, the response has been very positive. In fact, uh, to give you a couple of illustrations, I was preaching in Indiana on God's law and uh, showing the abiding validity of the law, then dealing with restitution. And uh, there was an elderly uh, gentleman in the congregation, and he got so excited that he raised his hand and his fist toward heaven, and you could hear him say, yes, over the entire congregation, because he realized that he was now hearing something that he had not heard since he was a boy. And he was agreeing wholeheartedly with it. And uh, the amazing thing that I'm finding is that uh, in all kinds of churches, you're still getting this response, uh, not only from the uh, older generation, but even from the younger generation as well. There are a number of young people who have been so absolutely fed up with the line that they have received and so dissatisfied with what they have been taught. And once they hear the Word of God, especially the teaching concerning biblical law, uh, they just simply understand that is the answer to today's ills and society's problems. How about the clergy? Well, I find that there are several things going on amongst the clergy. One of them, I find that there is a separating of the wheat and the chaff. Mm-hmm. Uh, on the one hand, you have a lot of preachers falling all over the country, and it doesn't really upset me in that sense of the word because uh, my attitude is, in one sense of the word, God really knows how to call them. In other words, I believe the the ones who are not God's true preachers are being exposed and, and, are, and are falling, and the people are seeing that the problems in their lives stem from the fact that they are either not converted or they certainly do not know the law of God and do not apply it. But on the other hand, uh, there have been a multitude of young pastors uh, that have seen the truth of God's word and the truth of God's law, and they're just literally devouring it uh, and, and assimilating it into their lives. It's coming out in their preaching left and right. Uh, there is a young pastor down in uh, Ocala, Florida, that just recently was telling me how that uh, God was just opening his eyes to truth after truth regarding his law, and he's teaching uh, this truth to a small congregation, but yet it's a very dedicated congregation. And you can multiply that all across the country. And so uh, on the one hand, you can see uh, some preachers who are falling, but you need not be discouraged because God still has his remnant, God still has his men, and they are indeed declaring the truth of his word. I'm going to tell a little illustration so that uh, we can discuss very specifically what's happening in the South. A good many years ago, I went to this 
a city, the capital of a state in the deep south. And the other speakers and I were invited to this old mansion where our hostess, whom I had met previously in the Washington, D.C. area, uh, had us over for dinner. Now, hers was an interesting story. Uh, well before the war, she had married a doctor. I believe was, the man was in the Air Force and uh, been stationed at different parts of the country. Then, after the war, her husband had been at the Pentagon, and after close to 20 years of marriage, dumped her for a younger woman, and was able to bribe the children by offering them... uh, new cars and this sort of thing, because he had money. Well, she returned to her hometown, went back to what she had been doing uh, more than 20 years earlier, working in the emergency room of a major hospital. And uh, I asked her, what was the difference that she saw there after being absent over 20 years. And she said, I can tell you best that while everything seems to be the same, it's different. When before the war I worked in this hospital in the emergency room, whenever someone came in injured for emergency treatment, they would immediately ask when they were ushered in, brought in on a stretcher, if I would call pastor so-and-so and let them know that they were in the hospital. That was the first thing they thought of. And very often they would be praying as they were put on the table for emergency surgery. And uh, she said, now, since I've been back, I've been working a couple of years, And only once have I heard anyone, when they are put on the table, say anything about God or prayer. And then I'm not sure it was a prayer. The man was uh, saying, oh, God. And he said, I think it was not a particularly reverent statement. The next day they will say, oh, by the way, would you call pastor so-and-so? Tell him I'm here in the hospital and to call on me. So she said, that's the difference. It's passed from the center of their lives Mm -hmm. to the margin of their lives. She said, everybody is still going to church, but it doesn't mean as much to them. Now, that was in the immediate post-war years. What would you say has happened since? Well, I would say, first of all, that what she enunciated for a while has gotten worse. Mm -hmm. I think that uh, it went further and further, but then I believe there's a turning point that is happening now in the fact that there are the elect or the remnant that are seeing 
that true faith is in every area of our life and that there is no separation and can be no separation. And slowly but surely, this truth is being inculcated in people all over. And and those who are indeed uh, being taught the Word of God, who are assimilating the Word of God, it is coming back out into the forefront. Uh, an illustration of this is, I know a gentleman that I mentioned to you earlier, who is a probation and parole officer, who was asked to speak to his colleagues, and he did so on the subject that prisons were unbiblical and what God demanded was restitution. And so here was a man literally, although he worked in that department, was putting his job at risk because he realized the truth of God was to be applied even in that area where he was working. So slowly but surely now, there are pockets all across this country where the truth is uh, awakening, so to speak, and people are seeing the primacy of the Word of God, and they are applying it to every area of their lives. I think the work you've done is evidence of that. I know when I visited you, and I won't mention places, uh, twice in this particular city in your state, there was a church there which was like a small college campus. It was such an enormous facility, beautiful. And here you had started a small work and a Christian school from the ground up on the edge of town on, what was it, 15 acres? Yes, sir. And you had a Christian school, a congregation, and a teacherage. Well, the editor of the uh, local paper told me, he said, uh, the big church with most of the people in town as members, he said, that's a country club uh, church. But he said, what uh, John Weaver has is the real Christian church. And I suspect more like that are uh, coming forth all over the South. Yes. Uh, in fact, there were a number of young men that I trained there, and they are now in the ministry. Mm-hmm. And some of them are now, well, like even in Tennessee and around, mm-hmm. not just in Georgia. And God is just uh, moving in their lives, and it's it's just been phenomenal to watch how how they have grown and progressed, and and God is using them as well. Are they in independent churches? Yes. That's yeah. the interesting thing. The mainline churches, for the most part, are not forging ahead the way the independent churches are. I know I mentioned to you that Dorothy and I were in one state in Cajun country where we spoke at this church, which had grown up almost out of nowhere at a sizable membership, two schools going all the way through uh, high school with hundreds of students. And uh, the work was phenomenal. It had arisen out of nowhere in just a few years. 
So it's a very encouraging sign. I, I think, John, we see a polarization in this country. Uh, mainline churches, with exceptions, heading in one direction. Yes. And new independent works moving in another direction and creating a new community, a truly Christian community and fellowship. Yes, I agree with that wholeheartedly. In fact, uh, some of the smaller churches are even tackling uh, the social issues. They're mm-hmm. dealing with economics. Mm-hmm. They're dealing with uh, usury. They're dealing with education. They're dealing with the law. And they're endeavoring to enlighten themselves as to what God's Word says in every area of their lives. Mm-hmm. And so it's uh, very exciting to see how that... Uh, they're growing in, in the faith and applying the Word of God. One interesting area to me is uh, precisely that economics. I recall getting a t- telephone call from the South a few years back and uh, I heard uh, first from the pastor and then one of the members. The pastor called me and he said, I have been accused of being one of your group. And I said, I had never heard of you. So I inquired and found out uh, who you were, where you lived, and so I'm calling you uh, to get on your mailing list and to know more about what you're doing because... Studying the Bible, we were suddenly under conviction by the Holy Spirit that we had to obey the whole Word of God. And the law was certainly a part of God's Word and a very sizable section. And he said, we were promptly accused of being one of those terrible Christian Reconstructionists. Well... Later, a member called, a young man, a newlywed, who said uh, he wanted prayer because he was going through a hellish time. His in-laws decided he was crazy and had persuaded his wife to agree with him because he would not go into debt. And they feel that I should go into debt and immediately get a big house instead of renting until I could afford to buy, buy all kinds of luxury items. And he said, I was under conviction to avoid that sort of thing. And they were uh, spreading the word around that I was absolutely crazy, that I had joined some weird cult. So he said, that's the pressure we're under. But he said, I'm standing firm. Well, excellent. Well, one of the things that most people forget is that most of our grandparents were debt-free. Yes. They usually saved for what they wanted, and if they had the money, they bought it. If they didn't, they just simply did without. The problem today is we don't have the discipline, nor the character, nor the teaching to inculcate that in our lives. I know that before the war, if you borrowed money to buy a farm or build a house, It was a five-year note. 
instead of six years in the biblical pattern, for bookkeeping reasons, they felt five years was easier. So you had to pay one-fourth down, and the balance in five years. Now that was true whether in California or in the southern states. And people don't know that. It was after the war that they brought in first the 10-year mortgage, then the 20, uh, 25, and for a while there were a few places where they were offering 30 and 35-year mortgages. So that at the time, uh, if you bought a house for 20000 you wound up paying about a hundred and thirty or forty thousand before it was over in principal and interest. Well and all that has come about because we have basically what I refer to as a slave mentality. Yes. And scripture says that the borrower is indeed servant or slave to the lender. Yes. And uh, unhappily today many people think they cannot function or live without debt. And it's based upon that slave mentality. Well, I've often commented on the fact, which I find very sad as well as offensive, that colleges and universities have gone in for price setting, have set the prices higher and higher, up to 35000 a year for some of the best universities, or so-called best, and beginning at about 5000 for the poorest, or that is, in terms of the official ratings, which doesn't mean they're true, which means then a student has to get a federal loan and go into debt for the rest of his life. He's a debtor, a slave, in order to get an education. And that is a monstrous evil, and I think it's deliberate. Yes. It's the enslavement of the youth of America, the gutting of their future. The sad thing is that uh, most everyone falls for it, however. Yes. And we need to go back to the old log college. (laughs) Yes do without some of the fancier things and really get down to the teaching like it should be. Exactly. Well, we are in for some troubled times because we have disobeyed God's law and God doesn't take kindly to it. Nowhere in the Bible do you find that he ever does And he says, I am the same yesterday, today, and forever. So we're going to see some real troubles. Yes. Some punishment. Dorothy was reminding me before the meeting and earlier today of a book written by Sir Henry Spellman in the 1600s, late 1600s. And he studied there all the families who'd participated in the seizure of search properties. And his thesis was, whatever the church was, the properties belonged to God. The money had been given to the Lord. 
If they felt the churches were wrong, they should have taken the properties and given them to another group so they would still be serving the Lord. And he studied all the families who bought those properties from Henry VIII's uh, administration. And they all ended up in disasters and death and were wiped out for the most part. And he said, lest someone think it was because the times were difficult, let us look at the uh, noble families that did not purchase these properties. And he said, they are still with us. They were not under the judgment of the Lord. Well, there's a verse in the Bible that certainly teaches that, especially when uh, you remember Hosea 4 and verse 6. For he said, My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because thou hast rejected knowledge, I will also reject thee, that thou shalt be no priest to me, seeing thou hast forgotten the law of thy God. Yes. I will also forget thy children. Yes. Give the citation again so people can look it up. Hosea 4 and verse 6. Yes. When you begin to think, though, that law is an expression of God's will, and children or an expression of our will, mm-hmm. this is a sample of the lex talionis, or the law of retribution. Yes. So if we forget God's law, then God may justly forget our children and forget us. Yes. For we have forgotten the expression of his will, he will also forget the expression of our will. Yes. That would not only relate to physical children, but children of productivity or plans yes. or purposes. So he could certainly frustrate and confuse and destroy those things. And we have to remember in times of judgment, the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Yes. They are to correct us. And if we will take the correction, then he will bless us. And of course, Hebrews 12, he says, this chastening is always for our good. Yes. And it is always for our profit that we Mm -hmm. should be partakers of his holiness. Yes. Well, we live in exciting times because a great many things are going to happen in our lifetime. At 81, I may not live to see all these marvelous judgments of the Lord, but uh, I know they're coming and I know they're going to do a Great work cleansing the world and cleansing this nation. And after that, we can look forward to a greater opportunity. And, of course, that's why we established Calcedon, to prepare people for that eventuality. Yes. The people of God have to be ready to stand and witness a good witness in the times of crisis to turn this country and the whole world around. That's why we have the ministries we do, as in Zambia and elsewhere all over the world, and we hope by the goodness of God's people to extend the work further because we have to be ready for the time of crisis, the time of judgment, the, uh, I believe the Chinese ideograph for crisis 
is made up of two symbols, and it means dangerous opportunity. So we have an opportunity ahead, a time of danger, but a very important opportunity. The Apostle Paul said something like that in 1 Corinthians chapter 16 when he asked them to uh, pray for him. He said there was a great door and an effectual door open unto him. Yes. And then he said, and there are many adversaries. Yes. So you could say that the doors of opportunity swing on the hinges of opposition. Yes. And the more the opposition, the more the opportunity. And uh, it's very exciting in that sense. And especially... When you think about in the book of Hosea, and God told his people there that I've given thee the valley of Achor for a door of hope. Mm -hmm. And the valley of Achor was the valley of judgment. It's where yes. Achan was judged. John, you mentioned that um, you you were surprised at the number of churches who were actually receptive to your teaching on, on biblical law. Normally, dispensationalist churches would not be receptive to such teaching. Are, are these churches uh, in the dispensational mold, and to what extent, or is that breaking down? Well, to answer that, I think that there is a breaking down of dispensationalism, or at least, let me put it like this, those who are dispensationalist are not consistent dispensationalist because they are aware of the problems not only that are happening in the country but are happening in their community and in their church and they need the answers as well and there have been several pastors that I know who were dispensational themselves and yet they have asked me to deal with the subject of biblical law in their churches and not only were those pastors but the churches receptive as well. Uh, I've, I've dealt as high as five days in a row with the subject of biblical law. In uh, one, one church I dealt with biblical law three hours a night for five nights. So uh, these were not what you and I would call uh, churches that would normally openly embrace biblical law, but yet here they were not only asking for it, but embracing it and seeing the reality and the truth of it. So uh, you could say that God is indeed opening the eyes of even some, some men who would normally deny the validity of biblical law and yet it, by their own presuppositions, and yet those presuppositions are fading and they're saying there must be a law, there must be a standard, there must be an absolute. And so, uh, yes, uh, some of that has been in those churches, and it has been widely received and embraced. Do you think, uh, so they're really approaching biblical law from the perspective of we have problems in society. This is what the Bible says about it. The Bible's opinion about this must be valid, and they're kind of coming in the back door to Christian reconstruction be, uh, out of necessity? That's exactly right. And you know, the, the, the amazing thing is this. Uh, I know pastors across this country that would never admit or confess in uh, Christian Reconstruction or Dominion, as we would call it, and yet they do everything in their power to bring their communities uh, 
in a subjection to the Word of God and to the Lordship of Christ. Uh, I know one pastor who has even written against dominion, and yet he has done everything he can to run the Sodomites out of his city and control that city and bring it under Christian principles and biblical truth. And so on the one hand, there is a denial of that truth, and yet practically speaking, they're doing the very thing that they're denying with their mouth. And so it's, it's really impossible, I believe, for a man to be consistent uh, and deny the, the truth of God's law because inevitably he's got to, to practice it somehow, in some way, j- just to make his ministry <laughs> effectual. Mm-hmm. Real dispensationalism is actually very complex and, and very difficult to understand, much less to, to defend. But a, a lot of dispensationalists have had the effect on the church at least of law versus grace, Old Testament versus New Testament, because that the, most people in the pew can understand that concept. Do you have a problem with people saying, I agree with everything you say, and I think it's wonderful, and I agree with your opinion on this and that, but I thought we weren't supposed to obey the law. What about law versus grace? Isn't this anti-grace? Well... Uh, the very first message it always preaches the abiding validity of the law of God. And I take and show how that every negative passage in the New Testament concerning the law of God can be explained in three ways. Either, number one, those passages which denounce the law as a means of justification, or number two, those passages which deal with the death-dealing nature of sin in relationship to the law, or number three, those passages which would refer to the ceremonial law, which now we have the substance or the reality in Christ. And I will take them to a number of those contexts and show them in context that's exactly what the Apostle Paul is doing. And yet when you come back to Romans 3 and verse 31, when Paul is teaching justification by faith, he says, do we through faith uh, disestablish the law? God forbid, yea, we establish the law. So any real preaching of justification by faith has to establish the law of God. Moreover, if you do away with the law of God, there is no sin. Mm-hmm. For uh, sin is by the knowledge of the law of God. That's what he said in Romans chapter <coughs> 20, Romans chapter 7, First uh, John chapter 5, or uh, chapter 3 and verse 4, when he said, Sin is the transgression of the law. Whosoever committed sin transgresseth the law. So, When you deny law, in essence, you have to deny sin. Secondly, if you deny biblical law, you have to deny, in reality, salvation. For the law is our schoolmaster to bring us unto Jesus Christ. So it's almost impossible, then, for someone to consistently deny the law of God. It's it's just impossible. So uh, many of the men uh, who would deny... Uh, the truth verbally, do not practice it. It's like saying that uh, there are no Calvinists when it, uh, there are no Armenians when it comes to prayer. Everybody's a Calvinist. No, no, no one comes up to God and say, "Now, Lord, we know that you've done everything that you can do. Now it's left up to my son or my daughter." No, we say, "God save my son. God save my daughter." And so, uh, in theology and prayer, you, everybody's a Calvinist. Mm-hmm. The South has had quite uh, an influx 
into the major cities and many minor cities of uh, northerners. Uh, President Johnson moved a great deal of uh, aerospace work into the south. I know at the time I was in Southern California and our group was over a period of time virtually cut in two because we had a great many aerospace engineers and scientists who were transferred to the various southern states. How has that invasion of northerners, so to speak, affected the south? <laughs> well, that's a good question. Uh, uh, there are bumper stickers down south. Uh, of course, a lot of them put out in fun, but uh, one of them says, Welcome to the south. Now go home. <laughs> well, uh, uh, there's another bumper sticker that says, uh, "Help keep the South clean by Yankee a bus ticket home." You know, but uh, all of that is done basically in fun. But uh, to answer the question, uh, of course, some of the churches, I think at first, uh, I'm not going to say that they were weakened, but uh, in the sense that. Uh, you had the different cultures, the different backgrounds. Um, they were at least uh, uh, in a state of uh, confusion there for a little bit. But I find, by and large, most of the Northerners that have come to the South to live in the South and have made the South their home have embraced the ideology and the principle of Southerners. And most of them now, although they were not native Southerners, uh, politically, uh, socially, uh, religiously, they would embrace the Southern principles. And I found another uh, amazing truth, and that is this. Any of the Northern brethren who have studied the history and the heritage of the South have come to embrace the same principles, although they're still in the North. And many of them tell me, well, I'm a northern by birth, but I'm southern in my heart and in my attitude. I know one man in the south who came there on business, married a southern girl whose family has a deep and rich heredity in things southern. And... Uh, He's fallen in love with the South and Southern history, and uh, his wife is uh, indifferent to her Southern heritage, to the men who fought for the South, but he has been busy collecting books, documents, mementos, uh, uniforms, everything connected with his wife's heritage. So he's more southern than anyone else in that yes. small community. It makes a tremendous difference once you see the heritage, once you see the history. And then I think once you get there and you see the people, that they're real, they're genuine, mm -hmm. they're warm. And it makes... Uh, I had an aunt who lived for years in a northern city, and she could not get over it when she came back home that everyone spoke to you, mm -hmm. everyone waved. And she said, you know, where we lived for the last 30 years, if someone spoke to you, and especially 
it was at dark, you ran as fast as you mm-hmm. could run. But uh, the South was totally different. Well, in the case I mentioned, uh, that was the thing he appreciated, coming from a northern city to a small southern town where you knew everyone within a week or two and uh, everybody greeted you, was interested in you. It was uh, a new life for him. He wasn't used to that and he loved it. His wife took it for granted. He never did. If we could just get some of the northerners to really begin enjoying southern ice cream, that's grits down south. We call that Georgia ice cream. (laughs) Yes, I know the first time I went into the south, uh, I found they were offended when I went through the line at breakfast (laughs) that I didn't take grits. I didn't know what they were. (laughs) And they told me I had to take them. Well, now, uh, uh, another uh, question. One of the things that has marked the South uh, has been a very great interest in the past, not only of the South and in the United States, but of the faith. I think the pioneer there was Lloyd Sprinkle in Harrisonburg, Virginia, Lloyd has a very remarkable library of Reformed classics, and he has been for years reprinting uh, some of the great Christian classics from Britain and from the United States. His books have circulated all over the country. Uh, Do you feel they've contributed a great deal to the uh, new awakening in the South? And the answer to that is yes, because uh, just about everywhere I go, I see a Sprinkle Publication book. Mm-hmm. And uh, whether it is on the life of Stonewall Jackson or the Great Revival in the Confederate Armies or, or any of these uh, books that he's given on the Reformed faith, they're literally just everywhere. And uh, people consume that literature Mm -hmm. and uh, he does an excellent job and uh, I must confess that uh, even the conferences that he has there at his church has really done a great deal to stimulate the people Mm -hmm. not only in the faith but in uh, studying their own history and their heritage of the faith well at our own conference this past Saturday in Sacramento was interesting to see how many sprinkle books there were on the book tables. He's done a great deal, and uh, someone ought to do a story yes. on his contribution uh, to the Reformed faith in the United States. I just came from a Christian history conference uh, a little south of here, And once again, his books were there again, Mm -hmm. all on the book tables. So his literature is getting out all across the country. Now, there's been uh, one major exception to the decline of the mainline churches, and that's the Southern Baptist Church. 
Yes. What do you have to report on that? Well, I would say probably the biggest impetus is being put out by the independent churches, but the Southern Baptist has made one giant step or one giant turn, and that there are many of those men now that are returning to the Calvinistic faith, embracing the doctrines of grace, preaching and teaching that truth. Uh, not only uh, one of the major seminaries, but also uh, many men in those churches. And each one of those Southern Baptist churches is supposed to be an independent autonomous church. And uh, those men are just uh, turning to the faith left and right. Mm -hmm. And it is a uh, real open door that they have there. I think the turnaround is not only significant in that it restores perhaps the largest single denomination uh, to the Bible-believing camp, but it was also done with an amazing amount of grace. Yes. Instead of uh, a rage against the modernists who had taken over the church, the leaders who were responsible for the turnaround did it with grace and kindliness and a desire to uh, rock the boat as little as possible. And I think that's one reason why they accomplished it so quickly. It isn't over yet, but there's no question the direction in which the Southern Baptist Church is moving now. They were not for a head-on battle, but for a recognition that uh, however underhanded the takeover was, they had to restore it to the status quo of the past, to the faith with grace. And nobody has commented on that. They did the entire turnaround by stressing grace. Well, very clearly the history and the heritage of the Southern Baptist was one of embracing the Calvinistic faith. Mm -hmm. When you listen to and read John Broadus and some of those other yeah. men, very clearly uh, they taught that truth. And yes. so... Uh, once again, it, it's pointing people back to the roots, mm -hmm. to their heritage, to their faith. Well, it's a very important thing that has happened because uh, when you realize that uh, one Southern Baptist seminary alone, the Louisville one, is the largest single seminary in the world. So the fact that it now is teaching the historic faith is a most significant fact because its impact is worldwide. Most seminaries have a, a small student body. It's a big one that has four or five hundred, very large. And here is the Louisville Seminary with, what is it, 2,500 students? Well, that's a, a tremendous fact. Yes. Yes. And, you know, there are other smaller seminaries as well mm -hmm. that are, 
have embraced and are teaching yes. the doctrines of grace. So it's uh, it's astounding. Mm-hmm. It's encouraging as well. Yes, it is. What area of the South do you feel is the most significant in this turnaround? Well, I would certainly love to say Georgia, <laughs> since that's where I'm from. But uh, uh, there, there's just so many areas. I, I can think of South Carolina. Mm-hmm. I can think of Tennessee. Uh, I can think of uh, North Carolina, of individuals and, and churches that, that I know that are having uh, great influence and, and uh, with, with the people in their areas. Uh, and Louisiana is another tremendous state. Oh, that's uh, interesting. And uh, uh, you have Steve Wilkins out yes. there and a number of other men like that. And it's it just seemingly is is blossoming all over the South, and uh, you will have a lot of the major conferences in practically every state in the South at mm-hmm. one time or the other. Uh, there's Alabama uh, with Ron Rundberg there, yes. and Charles Baker, and some of those other fellows that are doing an exceptional job, and and. Uh, uh, Dr. Baker uh, is one of those men who has a, a large uh, inventory of books that he puts out. And, uh, you know, it, it just seems like it's happening all over. The Christian school movement uh, got its uh, slowest start in the South and New England. Uh, it's been making up for uh, lost ground. Is it continuing to flourish and increase? Yes. Yes, and I believe although they started out slow, they're coming on very strong in the South. How about homeschooling? Homeschooling is definitely on the increase. Mm-hmm. Uh, Pastor McCurry has an excellent uh, Christian school there in Sharpsburg, uh, and everywhere I go there are homeschoolers, there are homeschoolers associations, uh, and uh, the people are getting back Mm-hmm. to really teaching their children the faith. Good. That is an interesting phenomenon. Uh, Ian Hodge, uh, who was here, and we taped him uh, about a week and a half ago, said that uh, public educator in Australia, Queensland, told him that the fastest growing movement in the world in this sphere of education was the homeschool movement. Even in uh, out-of-the-way places all over the world, Mm. it's proliferating. I've mentioned before, and I'm uh, delighted to have an opportunity to mention again, but this year I've spoken at three California homeschool conventions. Well, Mark and I went down to the one in Anaheim, and for that alone, I don't know what the final count was, but when Mark checked, they told him, and it was not over yet, that is, the registration, it was over 8,000, and they expected maybe 10,000. That was one of the three at which I spoke, and I don't know how many more there were. I know there was a fourth one in Modesto, and the newspaper said there were over 2,000 there. 
So it's a phenomenally growing movement. Well, it's really strong in Georgia as well. Mm-hmm. And so I'm not sure about the other southern states. I know they are just from going around there, but living in Georgia, mm-hmm. uh, there are homeschoolers everywhere. Well, that is important because it means where there's a homeschool, there is really a revival in the family. Yes. And it is interesting how many homeschooling families that have been unable to find a good church in the area have started home churches. So obviously it's a movement by men and women who take their faith very, very seriously and are going to follow it to whatever it leads. Well, it certainly demonstrates there's a strengthening of the family as well. Mm-hmm. And that uh, they want to impart their faith and their knowledge to yes. their children. Well, our time is almost up, John. Is there anything you'd like to say by way of conclusion? Well, I just want to encourage everyone of course to trust in the Lord and and understand that uh, certainly we need to apply the faith on a daily basis in every area of our lives and every sphere of our lives and that uh, as Brother McCurry always said uh, no need to really worry because God has this thing fixed mm-hmm. <laughs> and he's on Good. the throne and uh, and uh, it's very encouraging, and it's although there may be times of persecution, times of oppression, there's no reason to give in, to give up, or give under, or to quit, uh, right. because God is sovereign and He's on the throne. Yes. Mark, is there anything you'd like to say by way of conclusion? No, I know. Well, thank you all for listening, and God bless you. We are very pleased that John was able to be with us and John don't wait as long as you have before you come here again thank you you're a very dear friend and we've had some good times together in the past and the Lord willing we'll have some more in the future amen amen well God bless you all and good night